following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. It's been a long time. Actually, it's only been one week for those of you who have been following along. But for some of you uh, who were not following along with our Sir Thomas Mowry, our long marathon through Sir Thomas Mowry's entire works uh, in only 36 sessions, which took somewhat less than a year, we are now back and we have returned to the history of Middle-earth and to Tolkien by the popular demand of our voters uh, who want to carry on our march through and we begin volume nine, Sauron Defeated, today. Uh, I, re I really like... Um, I really like Christopher Tolkien's description of how hard it was to find a title uh, for this book because it's like the tag end of the uh, history of the Lord of the Rings and then a bunch of like Numenor stuff, basically. Uh, so he's like, uh, what do these things have in common? Oh, wait, Sauron loses all over the place. So that's what we'll call it. Um, I, um, <laughs> I, I just I, I, I thought that was admirable frankly you know great title great title um but uh anyway okay so oh devora sorry to hear your book hadn't arrived yet but uh it's all right the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight is relatively familiar uh so i hope you should be able to follow along even uh if you didn't get a chance to do all the reading yet um great to see so many of you it's uh, you know a, a bunch of you that i am seeing here tonight i've not uh seen around for a while um so uh, glad, um, glad that you're. I know both Tony in the uh, GoToWebinar chat and Tarlonial in the and the Twitch chat are uh, uh, blaming me for spoilers. Uh, you know, like, oh great, Sauron gets defeated. Now we know the ending. Um, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, but anyway, um, excited to get going here tonight. So without. Further ado, let me just do some quick announcements because we got some fun stuff that's coming up, including one brand new event, uh, which uh, I've never announced yet. So I want to make sure that people know that that's happening. So let me just go where I always go when I want to find out what's going on. And that is to the SignumUniversity.org website. So uh, two things quick you see here on our big special tab here is our special uh, banner here in the middle. First, our Anytime Audit special on Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth, the wonderful course that was taught by uh, taught here at Signum by John Garth, uh, a sort of an expansion of, that, of the examination that he does in his wonderful book, Tolkien in the Great War. Um, we are having that on special for everyone who wants to learn more about that period in Tolkien's life, having uh, uh, seen or abstained from seeing uh, the Tolkien biopic. I suggest you see it because I love it. Uh, and I can't even still get used to the fact that I'm saying that I, I've never been so shocked, but anyhow, um, so, um, uh, so that's, uh, that's the, the anytime audit special that goes through this coming Sunday. So, uh, make sure if you, uh, were hoping to get a copy of that course, this is a great time to do it. Uh, and time's running out on that. The second thing is of course, Mootcast, the awesome new option this year, which we're unrolling for the first time. Mythmoot is coming up the end of June. It's going to be fantastic as always. I can't wait to see so many of you there. It is the event of the year that I count down the days to every single year, but I know that not everybody can get there. Uh, and so we have for the first time this option for 75, a $75 
registration fee, you not only get live access to everything all weekend long, but you also get archived recordings, which means when there are three concurrent sessions going on, you don't have to choose. Well, you have to choose which one you're going to see live, but you can get recordings of all of them, so you don't miss anything. And uh, Mootcast also comes automatically included with anyone who registers, even for a single day uh, of MythMoot. So, um, anyway, I'm still super excited that we can offer uh, Mootcast this year. So those are those two other things. Now we keep scrolling down and here's our upcoming event. So this is the new one. So I'm going to be talking. A bunch of people have been wanting, have been asking for a session where uh, I discussed. So Maggie Park and I, Maggie, Maggie and I got together to talk about the trailers when the trailers were released. Uh, Maggie is somebody who actually knows stuff about film, unlike me. Um, so she and I are going to be discussing the uh, the the Tolkien movie, uh, so you can hear some more detailed analysis and uh, in depth uh, reactions and things like that. Um, so anyway, that's uh, going to happen, and that's happening this coming Saturday, May 18th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time is when that broadcast is going to be. Maggie's in the UK, so it's got to be early in the day. Um, and then on the next day, on Sunday, May 19th, the self-same day that our Anytime Audit special ends, we have uh, Thesis Theater with Trish Lambert. Trish Lambert is finished, is completing her thesis, and she's going to be presenting on that uh, on Sunday afternoon. She's doing an analysis of Lotro as an adaptation. Really, really uh, cool stuff. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to join us for that. And then... On May 30th, we have the next uh, edition of the Mythgard Movie Club, which is uh, Camelot, looking at the old Camelot film, uh, classic Arthurian adaptation uh, from middle of the 20th century. Uh, and uh, anyway, so we're going to talk about that as sort of, uh, uh, the, that's the uh, movie club's sort of tip of the cap to our actually finishing the Mallory class. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun, too. Um, Anyhow, <laughs> yeah. well, Arthur, you, you think I'm a whippersnapper for calling the Camelot film old? I mean, in my defense, it is like 60 years old. Uh, so I mean, it's pretty old for a movie, you have to admit. <laughs> uh, I see 52 years. See, there you go. Okay, fine. 52 years. <laughs> uh, but still. Still, that's, you know, it's been around a while. And then, of course, Mythmoot. Oh, the one last thing I wanted to emphasize about Mythmoot. So registration for attending Mythmoot Live is scheduled to close on the 6th. I think it's the 6th of June. Anyway, or 8th of June. Maybe it's the 8th of June. Anyway. Early in June is when it's so so sooner is better than later. Uh, Mootcast, you can sign up for Mootcast through the 30th. That is through the last day of Mythmoot. But once the conference is over... Is gone. So if you want to sign up for Mootcast, we're not going to sell recordings after the fact or anything. If you miss the event, you miss the event, right? So, but you can sign up all the way through. So if you sign up on on the Sunday, you'll still get access to all of it. But obviously, better to sign up sooner and get access to stuff live too, because that's even better. Um. Anyway, okay, all right. Um. Let's. Uh, that's it. That's all the stuff that's going on. So let's back to our uh, beginning, our discussion here. Um, okay. The first thing I wanted to address when we talk about Sauron Defeated is we get back into the uh, history of the Lord of the Rings stuff. We're basically uh, where 
the War of the Ring ended, as you may remember, is basically around the end of Book Five. Um, so we were we were ending with the uh, you know the maneuvers of Gandalf and Aragorn and the uh, armies of the you know the, the armies of the West uh, coming up to the Black Gate. We didn't get the final destruction of the Ring of the Cracks of Doom or any of the sort of later materials. That's what we're going to cover here at the beginning of Sound Defeated. That's what we're starting with. I wanted to begin with the very first paragraph of the foreword, uh, because this is um, very relevant to a question which has been kind of bothering me. I've been sort of fretting over this, and I've made a decision. I'm not 100% at peace with it, but I, I think I can accept it and move on. So... Uh, it's, uh, this is the first paragraph, Christopher Tolkien's description here. With this book, my account of the writing of The Lord of the Rings is completed. I regret that I did not manage to keep it even within the compass of three fat volumes, but the circumstances were such that it was always difficult to project its structure and foresee its extent, and became more so since when working on The Return of the King, I was largely ignorant of what was to come. I shall not attempt a study of the history of the appendices at this time. That work will certainly prove both far-ranging and intricate, and since my father soon turned again, when The Lord of the Rings was finished, to the myths and legends of the Elder Days, I hope after this to publish his major writings and rewritings deriving from that period, some of which are wholly unknown. Okay, so, translation, I'm not going to do the appendices or the prologue, right? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to... Um, well, I'm back, and then I'm done, says Christopher, with the history of the Lord of the Rings. There's a fat lot I could say about the appendices. If I tried, you know, and, and this is, you know, think about the appendices, right, and what this means. Um, I've talked before to do, um, I've, I've talked before about how, I mean, if you kind of basically think about the rough shape of Tolkien's overall kind of writing life, right, after the Lord of the Rings, a lot of the work that he did in those, especially like the first five years after he completed the, the Lord of the Rings, a lot of what he was doing was world building, basically going back and sort of fleshing out things and working out concepts, connecting things that he didn't before. Um, that's when we get some things like the essay on the Astari, right? Him sitting down and figuring out. Remember that awesome passage in The Return of the King where Pippin is sort of looking at Gandalf as they're going into uh, uh, Minas Tirith, right? As they're entering into the the the, the Hall of the Kings, right? And, and, and meeting um, Denethor for the first time. And he looks at Gandalf and he's like, Who, what is Gandalf anyway, right? When did he enter Middle-earth? And it's not, it's pretty clear that Tolkien had never asked, it's, it's, pre it's pretty clear that, it isn't that Tolkien had never asked himself that question before, but he had certainly never answered it before, right? Um, so, and he never does during the course of The Lord of the Rings. So that's one of the things, the essay on the Astari, you know, this, the, the stuff that he does on the Astari afterwards, you can kind of understand is like Tolkien finally sitting down and saying, all right, I'm going to answer this question. What are the wizards, and when did they enter the world after all, right? Um, and the same thing with a bunch of stuff, like a lot of the things that he went back and thought through and rethought and, and all kinds of things, right? Okay, so um, he started doing that right after he finished The Lord of the Rings. The appendices, the composition of the appendices was really the beginning of that. And we can begin to see it creeping in, right? I don't know if you noticed 
I didn't put this on a slide because it's just a little uh, passing reference. But did you notice that one passage when he's talking about the chronology? I think it was in chapter two. Um, when he's talking about the chronology uh, and he's mentioning like which day of March this stuff happens in, right? And then he just, as an aside, like as a note to himself, says, I should really use the Hobbit names for the months, right? He's, you know, he's like in this moment here and we're like writing book six. He's like at the very end of the story and he's like, I really need to develop the calendars more and maybe I should consider working backwards and and instead of using the English days of the week and the English months of the year, um, I should like develop the Shire calendar and use the Shire calendar consistently throughout the narrative, right? You can see like that idea comes to him in the middle of sorting things out. And to his credit, he doesn't get sidetracked by that at that moment, right? Um, he doesn't do it. He just carries on talking about March, right? Uh, and leaves that aside. But of course, He's not going to forget it entirely, and he's going to end up writing an entire appendix uh, on the calendars and the calendar issues. So, um, anyway, lots and lots of examples um, of examples with this kind of thing. And Tony, you're right. Christopher does do, or, or rather, remember, by this time, he has already done, uh, because it predated the entire History of Middle-Earth series, Unfinished Tales, which brings forward a lot of that stuff, a lot of that extra stuff that Tolkien wrote in those years after The Lord of the Rings to flesh out and fill out uh, the ideas of, like, you know, the, the world and the backstories and everything else. So, you can understand why Tolkien has decided to, Christopher Tolkien has decided to punt for now on the appendices, because that's obviously going to be a really big thing, right? I mean, to show the development of how, like, how did all the, I mean, because like those calendars didn't just spring into life fully formed, right? I mean, he had, what did he go through to work that out? How did he base that? Anyway, so, um, so there's all kinds of stuff there. Um, and it clearly would take a long time. And it does take a long time. So Christopher Tolkien will, in fact, get around to doing that. He has, I should say, gotten around to doing this again. But it didn't happen until volume 12. So if you go to volume 12, which is I'm glancing at my bookshelf over there to make sure I don't accidentally say the wrong thing. Uh, the Peoples of Middle-earth is the sort of kind of generic, admittedly, somewhat lame, name of volume 12 of the history of Middle-earth. Um, and he does his analysis of the appendices uh, in that volume. Um, so chronologically speaking, we should, you know, I was tempted, right? This is where my temptation now comes in. My temptation, because as many of you know, I'm like a very dedicated completionist. I love watching things in order. Like even now, I won't let myself go see Avengers Endgame because I'm kind of trapped because I didn't see Captain Marvel yet. And I know people are like, you don't have to see Captain Marvel. And I'm like, completionist? The heck are you talking about? Of course I do. Um, anyway, whatever. Like That's me, right? So I'm really tempted to say, all right, let's um, let's discuss. Robert Brown was uh, emailing me about this. And Robert, I, I, I'm... Uh, I'm with you on this. Um, so uh, I'm really tempted to come to the end of the, the end of the third age material in, in the beginning of this volume and then say, okay, now let's interrupt this volume in order to bring forward the stuff from volume 12, where he discusses the appendices really tempted to do that. Um, here's the problem. The problem is 
It's 300 pages long. His discussion and analysis of the appendices is 300 pages long. It's like two thirds of volume 12, right? So basically it would be, it would be really awkward. Because it would be like, well, you, you know, everybody voted for Sauron defeated and we're going to do that. Plus, we're also going to do, you know, two thirds of volume 12 at the same time. And then when we get around to volume 12, all we'll have is like the stubby leftovers uh, at the end of volume 12 to do because we'll already have done a bunch of it. At the end of the day, I'm going to resist doing that. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Um, it does mean that we're not going to be reading all, you know, everything that we're reading is not going to we, we've been basically following through in chronological order, order in Tolkien's life. But as Christopher goes on to admit after this, he's already shifting it around for the sake of continuity. Right. Um, when that year and a half, when Tolkien was stopped writing uh, in the middle of the Lord of the Rings, he wasn't writing anything. It's not that he wasn't writing anything. He wrote the Notion Club papers then. Uh, so. Uh, really, had we been going chronologically, some of the stuff that we get later on, uh, some of the stuff even that we get in um, uh, uh, perhaps in Unfinished Tales, should be crammed in in the midst of uh, the history of the Lord of the Rings stuff. And Christopher didn't do that. I think he was right uh, to um, uh, to not do that. So I think we're just going to carry on uh, following the progression in the way I, I think we should just do the history series by publication order um, we'll just stick with it we'll be mindful of the fact that when we get to volume 12 we're kind of going backwards in time um, but again I I, I, I really think um, that um, we'll get there and I don't think it's worth pausing um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Bruce asks, do I pause right before the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, to read a horse and his boy before reading the last couple of paragraphs? No, I don't Bruce, but that's, I uh, don't even get me onto the subject of chronology and the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, no, but, uh, do I make sure when I, like I'm rewatching, the new who that I stopped to like watch all the little like bits that were broadcast in other weird places in between episodes before I watch the next episode. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, but anyway, okay. So we'll get there, but I'm not going to do that now. So just, just to kind of keep in mind, there's a lot more in a sense, right. Of the history of the Lord of the Rings, because we do get the history of the appendices. We just won't get it yet. Uh, so, Hold on, and we'll get there, right? Um, okay, uh, so that's my decision. I'm sticking with it. We're just going to go in volume order, so we shall carry on with Notion Club papers after we get to uh, through the rest of the book six material here. All right, okay. Having said that, uh, let's... Move on. The first thing that we get in chapter one of this book is a discussion of the plan, right? The projections, how Tolkien's concept of the end of um, the end of the uh, the story is supposed to go, right? In particular, the destruction of the ring um, at uh, Mount Doom. And I was very grateful for Christopher's um, um, 
I was very grateful for Christopher's uh, uh, reminding us, right, of some of the things we've seen before about this. So we're kind of going backwards here. This is the very first outline projection of what might happen. Uh, you will recall, of course, the fact that the ultimate destiny of the ring was going to be the cracks of doom. That is something that was uh, um, foreseen almost immediately, almost as soon as uh, we discovered that the ring was a ring of power uh, and belonged to Sauron and was instrumental to his power, that it was going to have to be born to the fire mountain and cast into it. Uh, uh, it was That was a very, very early concept. Um, ba- back when Tolkien was under the very firm impression that when uh, Frodo... Well, Bingo, of course, as it was at the time when Bingo arrived in Rivendell, he, he, he Tolkien, was halfway through the book, right? Um, back in those days. So, okay, so here's this first glimpse. At end, when Bingo, changed to Frodo, at last reaches Crack and Fiery Mountain, he cannot make himself throw the ring away. He hears Necromancer's voice offering him great reward to share power with him if he will keep it. At that moment, Gollum, who had seemed to reform and had guided them by secret ways through Mordor, comes up and treacherously tries to take Ring. They wrestle, and Gollum takes Ring and falls into the crack. The mountain begins to rumble. Okay, so this is the very first conception. The thing that I would draw attention to here is what are the central concepts, right? When he was imagining this... um, when he was imagining this this scene from the very beginning, what are the core elements in his mind from the start? The very first thing is that Frodo can't cast the ring in. Um, there never was a version, ever, ever a version, in which Frodo gets to the mountain and completes his quest and chucks the ring in, right? That was never going to happen. Um, so the thing that uh, that Tolkien foresaw most clearly is that this is... um, uh, The thing that he foresaw most clearly is that ultimately this quest is beyond Frodo's power and that Frodo is going to need some kind of assistance, right, before... um, uh, before, In order for the ring to make its way into um, into the cracks of doom and get itself destroyed. Um... Yeah, Karita, I agree. The temptation that he gets here, right? Him hearing Sauron's voice, um, it does begin to sound kind of temptation in the wilderness-ish, doesn't it? Uh, that is the temptation of, of uh, Jesus after his baptism uh, in the early chapters of the Gospels. Um, it's a lot like that, right? Um, and that itself is interesting, Sauron attempting to bargain with Frodo. Here's the thing. The biggest thing that really strikes me about that. What Sauron says to Frodo here, right? Sauron's role as tempter, and it's kind of hard to say that as if like it's a fully developed role or something. It's just a concept in an outline here. But anyway, this this idea that Sauron acts as tempter here to Frodo um, gets displaced, right? It gets displaced onto um, uh, onto the ring, 
itself, the kinds of things that the, those ring induced monologues that, uh, that I've been talking about for a long time, um, those strings of rationalizations that people get going through their minds when they have the ring or uh, when they're wearing the ring or when they're just tempted uh, to take the ring like Boromir um, or even like Denethor kind of gets one briefly. Um, anyhow, it gets shifted from Sauron to the ring itself. Um, one of the things that I think is most interesting about that is that I think that we can see Tolkien's concept of the ring itself developing over time. You know, it, we've talked about this a lot, and certainly this is something we've discussed many times uh, in exploring the Lord of the Rings. What's one of the things that we're kind of tracking uh, on purpose as we go through uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings is looking at those ring temptation moments um, and really trying to understand how conscious is the ring, how active of a tempter is the ring? Um, does the ring make plans? You know, uh, what information do we really have about that? Because sometimes people will get into the habits of thinking of the ring as a, a very active agent. Um, and there's some support for that. That's, that is, uh, that is certainly a possible way uh, of looking at things, but is there really enough um, evidence for that? So it's one of the things that we're tracking. So therefore it's interesting to see that, that does not seem to be part of the initial concept, right? Um, the ring, in this very first conception, the ring doesn't seem to be doing anything. The ring is a, a, a patient. It is not an agent throughout this whole thing, right? Sauron's is the voice uh, that, is, uh, um, uh, that is acting on Frodo. Um, second idea the Reformation and then treachery of Gollum, right? Now, keep in mind, this is way pre-Shelob, way pre-Shelob. Um, you may remember from the earlier volumes that as soon as there were spiders, Gollum was betraying Frodo to the spiders, right? That was, that was like, and, and there were spiders pretty much as soon as we got to Mordor. When uh, you, you may recall that the Black Gate itself, the ent the primary pass, the only pass into uh, uh, Mordor was like choked with giant spiders, many giant spiders. Um, and it was them to whom uh, Gollum betrayed Frodo first, right? To them and to the orcs. So that Gollum is destined to betray Frodo has been a concept from the very beginning. Uh, but... It's not just a betrayal, right? Um, the idea of his reformation. Now, here it sounds like his reformation was just an act all along, right? That he was just faking it and he was setting them up for betrayal um, after all. So that's one thing, right? Clearly, the idea of Gollum's reforming, the potential for real reformation in Gollum, um, is not, doesn't seem to be part of the original plan. But also the fact that that betrayal is how the ring gets um, uh, gets destroyed, right? They wrestle and Gollum takes the ring and falls into the crack. That's the concept from the very beginning. Um, and often, usually, with some kind of, uh, or very quickly, we will get some kind of maiming of Frodo, right, uh, in the in the 
the course of that wrestling, right? Um, so Gollum's treachery, his greed for the ring and his treachery to Frodo as the, uh, the instrument, right? As the means by which the ring gets destroyed um, when Frodo himself cannot force himself to and he begins to fall to the temptation uh, to keep it and to claim it for himself. That is the story from the very, very beginning. Um, so, yeah, no, James, you're right. Uh, James Lieback, you're right to point out that he does authentically guide them, right? You know, he he, he genuinely guides them. Um, is this, is Tolkien suggesting here in this outline that his whole plan was to betray them at this point? Um, did he seem to reform because he really kind of was reforming, but then gives in, Gollum himself is succumbing to temptation, a different temptation at the last second? Um, I'm not quite sure how we're supposed to be taking that here. Um, I think you could kind of go either way with that. Um, but, uh, but James, I do agree. The, uh, the genuine guidance that he has given them by secret ways through Mordor seems legit, right? Um, and that's, at least opens up that interesting, that interesting possibility. Um, uh, so let's look at the sort of the the next I'm, I'm, I didn't put down every single version of it but here as the uh, concept changes I tried to catch the major ones so we can begin to see the shape here Ordruin, written above Mount Doom has three great fissures north, west, south changed to west, south, and east in its sides they are very now hang on a second let's just think about that change of direction so the first time there isn't one on the east and in the second one, there isn't one on the north. So what he changed it to, interestingly, is that they had to, they couldn't just come down from, they're coming down from the north pretty much from the beginning. So he'd made it so that they couldn't come down from the north and then just go straight up and there's a crack of doom right there on that side of the mountain. He makes them go up and go around the mountain. Um... I think in order to maneuver them to be on the east side so that the door, you know, like the where they're coming through uh, is facing towards Barad-dur, I think. Um, I'm not 100% sure what the significance of that change of direction is. But the fact that the north is the one that's eliminated and that's the direction they're coming from uh, seems to be significant, I would say. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, oh, uh Matt, uh, whom I believe is evil Dr. Cannon, right, um, uh, asks, at what point does Gollum no longer want to betray Frodo to the orcs? Um, and uh, pretty quickly, actually, I think, uh, he betrays Frodo to the orcs the first time Tolkien writes that out. Uh, and again, you guys may remember that uh, it's when he gets hauled off to Minas Morgul by the orcs and he's imprisoned within Minas Morgul and then Tolkien gets completely stuck. Uh, uh, you know, has Sam come and mostly rescue him, uh, from the, um, uh, from the, 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 from Minas Morgul, but he get you know, he kind of breaks it off because he seems to be having a hard time finding a plausible way for them to get the heck out of Minas Morgul, uh, which is full of Nazgul at the time. It was tricky. Um, but after that time, I don't think he, Gollum has ever betrayed them to orcs again. After that first time, Tolkien seems to have seen the problematic, uh, you know, situation that that creates. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, 
All right. Uh, anyway, so directions got okay. They were very. They are very deep, and at an unguessable depth, a glow of fire is seen. Every now and again, fire rolls out of the mountain's heart down the terrific channels. The mountain towers above Frodo. He comes to a flat place on the mountainside where the fissure is full of fire, Sauron's well of fire. The vultures are coming. He cannot throw the ring in. The vultures are coming. All goes dark in his eyes, and he falls to his knees. At that moment, Gollum comes up and wrestles with him and takes the ring. Frodo falls flat. Here, perhaps, Sam comes up, beats off a vulture, and hurls himself and Gollum into the gulf. Uh, yes. <laughs> Stephen says, Sam is awesome if heroically dead. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so, I, I, yeah, Devora, I, I, you, you kind of, um, you kind of, I, the, the role of the vultures as the anti-eagles here is pretty clear, right? I mean, the repetition of the vultures are coming couldn't be clearer, I think, uh, in setting them up in plain opposition uh, to the eagles uh, being coming. The vultures are the mounts, right? Before we had the kind of less clearly specified fell beasts, right? We had vultures. Uh, and uh, so Sam is first going to beat off one of the mounts of the Nazgul and then he... or. Wait a second. Wasn't there also an implication? And it's been so long, I'm forgetting too. Wasn't there also an implication that they could turn into vultures? That like the Nazgul were like were vultures? Didn't that come up? Right? I mean, I I can't remember. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, uh, uh, first fish, I was thinking that same thing too. Uh, that... Uh, um, it sounds like we cannot get out, right? The drums in the deep. He cannot throw the ring in. We, right? We, uh, uh, yeah, the the it, it sounds a lot like the the Book of Mazarbol there. Um, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yana and Kate are both agreeing with me. It wasn't. It came up in passing. It wasn't explicit. It wasn't an idea that he'd settled on. But yeah, there. I think there was a point at which he was considering having the Nazgul actually transform into flying creatures rather than. Um, just riding on them, but uh, that was a that was a. So I'm just thinking the the phrase beats off a vulture as if like, oh, and P.S. There's the Nazgul riding on its back. It would seem weird not even to mention the Nazgul, right? Uh, if there was, if like, if this is the Witch King or or even one of the other Nazgul, like you'd think that would come up, right? So him beating off a vulture makes it sound like the vulture is the Nazgul. So I think this might have been from that um, um, that brief period when he was considering that. Um, okay, so a couple things that we see here. One, as always, we can see Tolkien trying to visually conceive of the scene, right? Um, Tolkien, and the more I read his draftings and the more we, you know, the further we go through the history of Middle-earth, the clearer this gets to me. Tolkien always was a visual artist first and foremost. You know, he doesn't talk about his painting much. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't take pride in his painting. He doesn't boast about his painting. He doesn't think he's very good. Um, but he always thinks like a painter. And so here I think that we can see him picturing, right? Visualizing. Look at the the sort of the, the way that he's imagining himself, the mountain towers above Frodo, right? Um, 
uh, the, the Fisher Full of Fire, which is a really lovely uh, um, piece of alliteration, isn't it, Stephen? You're right about that. Um, anyway, uh, you know, and even the, uh, they are very deep and at an unguessable depth, a glow of fire is seen, right? All very, very clearly visually realized descriptions of the mountain and the different places that are going to be significant here. Um, often, there are many people who wouldn't include that much description in their plot outlines, which is still what this is. This is not prose, right? This is not him composing prose. This is him outlining. And yet, the description of the surroundings is so important to him as he's working this stuff out that he includes it in his uh, in his outlines here as well. And again, that um, to me is really is really uh, uh, suggestive, uh, very telling. Okay. Once again, we see the emphasis on Frodo's inability. He cannot throw the ring in. He is not able to do it. It cannot happen. That is not an option. Um, despite the urgency, right? The vultures are coming. The vultures are coming. The Nazgul are about to be... When the Nazgul arrive, they are going to take the ring. He is going to lose the ring anyway, right? Notice the... This, the, the sort of the, the significance of that, right? Frodo, there's no percentage in this, right? None at all, right? You claim the ring for yourself, and they're just going to take it off you. So you're going to lose it one way or another. Just throw the bloody thing in, right? I mean, that's... But he can't. He can't do it, no matter what. Despite the circumstances, despite the urgency, he cannot. All goes dark in his eyes, and he falls to his knees, right? This reminding us, I think, we certainly reminding me, given our discussions we've been having recently and exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, of him at the ford of, uh, of Brunin, right? The ford of Rivendell, um, when everything goes dark and he collapses there, um, right on the, the brink, in that case, of the water, not of the fire. Gollum comes up and wrestles with him, which seems rather one-sided at that point, because he's going dark and falling to his knees, and and all we get from him is that he falls flat. Um, one of the things here that Tolkien seems to be sort of second-guessing from the original conception, the original conception had Gollum taking the ring and falling in, right? He seems to want to add some agency, and in particular, the primary change, of course, is the addition of Sam, and Sam's act of heroism not only in narrowly getting there before the vulture, beating off the vulture. I would love to see that. Like, beats off a vulture. Like, can, can I get that scene, please? Right? Sam's um, uh, uh, vanquishing of a Nazgul on his way to, like, tackling Gollum and uh, uh, sending them both toppling over into the abyss. That's um, kind of amazing. Devorah, I admit that I kind of also feel that way. Thank goodness he let Sam live. But I have to admit, I am not without um, sympathy. For You know, John Caldwell was arguing that he almost prefers this ending for Sam. The love and devotion that he's had for Frodo through the entirety of the journey uh, almost uh, feels like it's building to Sam making the sacrifice that Frodo cannot. I can hear that argument, John. I really can. Um, 
I certainly think that if this is how it did end for Sam, obviously it's sadder, and goodness knows my personal affection for Sam is sufficiently great that I am super happy to see him settling down and living happily ever after. Uh, Turtle O'Neill says that Rosie Cotton would like to register a protest against this line of thinking. Nancy is thinking the same thing. Um, but there's definitely, there's definitely, I mean, there's no question that this would be a good end for Sam, right? It wouldn't be a good ending, you know, it wouldn't be the kind of ending that the folks inside the story would call a good ending, right? Um, uh, but out. I mean, again, John, in that way, thinking back to that scene, right, you could make an argument to say Sam himself is anticipating this, right, uh, that it might come to something like this. Um, so, I, I, you know, I uh, am not going to complain about Sam's survival, but I certainly do... Um, I certainly do agree that um, this, I think, would have been uh, uh, a really good ending. Um, let's see. Oh, Matthew, I don't recall. Matt is ask. Matthew's asking um, where had Tolkien written up to when he did this outline. It's still pretty early. I think I'd have to go back and if somebody could, there's uh, the uh, uh, Christopher has the notes there, um, references back to the earlier volume where this comes from. If somebody could find it and remind us, that'd be great. I didn't, uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but if somebody could find that, that would be handy to know. Um, you know, Rachel says, would Frodo ever be able to recover emotionally from Sam sacrificing himself in this way? Well, Rachel, no, but. Frodo can't ever recover emotionally anyway, right? Uh, so, you know, I don't want to be callous about Frodo's inability to cope, um, but um, uh, but but yeah, I mean, it would be it would I mean, obviously, it would be it would give a very different tone to the whole ending, obviously, um, and of course, the ending's already sad. Um, okay, it's the story foreseen from Moria? Okay. Okay. So they're only in Moria at the time. So when he's thinking of this, he has not... Um, Tolkien hasn't discovered Galadriel yet. He hasn't discovered Rohan yet. He barely knows anything about Gondor. Um, and it's not even 100% obvious that um, it's not even 100% obvious that Aragorn is definitely going to be uh, king in the normal thing. So, um, yeah. Um, Yana, yes. Um, would this be the germ of Mary stabbing that mighty knee? Not this, but one like this. Maybe it's like the germ of the germ, uh, Yana, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah. Okay, so anyway, the point is this is still quite early, right? One of the main things that I would point to here is as far as the actual action is concerned, yeah, I mean, the death of Sam, pretty major change, but ultimately, to, to me, it feels like there's more that's consistent than not, right? There's more that's unchanged than is changed. We still have Frodo being unable to throw it in, Gollum taking the ring from him, and Gollum ending up carrying the ring into the abyss, the only addition is Sam's heroic and self-sacrificial act of conveying him there, 
right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, Eric was uh, endorsing the protest against Sam's death uh, on the grounds that it gives Bilbo's and Frodo's mercy towards Gollum more meaning. Uh, if uh, uh, Gollum's death uh, brings about it without the, you know, without making it about Sam, right? Uh, Sam's heroic sacrifice, therefore, kind of... Um, Eric, I agree with you. One of the negative... Um, one of the negative consequences, I think, of having Sam intervene like this is Gollum's role is very much less, right? I mean... It's still important if Gollum hadn't taken the ring from Frodo, it's not clear what Sam would have done. I mean, would Sam have come up, ripped the ring off Frodo's hand, and thrown it in? Um, maybe he could have done that had Gollum not been there. Um, but again, I, it's, it would be much harder for Frodo to be able to say at the end of this scene, as he does in the published text, um, you know, it all would have been for nothing if not for Gollum. Like, it, you know, it, it, Gollum was the reason that the ring is destroyed. Um, yeah, Stephen is uh, focusing on the Frodo falls flat. Um, he falls flat right by where the fissure is full of fire, <laughs> you'll notice. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, Stephen is asking, does the loss of the ring just break? Frodo here, rather than enrage him. Yeah, Stephen, that is one of the things that is interesting about this outline. It would seem at first sight that Frodo is far more passive here, right? Um, I guess I should say far more fearful or something. Uh, but anyway, uh, Frodo is far more passive, right? We don't see, is he being tempted? What is his response to that temptation? Is he even claiming the ring for himself? I mean, he's just like, oh, I can't. Oh, I'm blacking out. Oops, I, I've taken, the ring is taken from me. I'm falling. Right? He does nothing, really, at all that we can see. One thing to be cautious of, though, Tolkien's already worked this out, right? Um, this is his second time through this ending. It is not, it doesn't mean... Um, if he does not talk about Frodo's temptation, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't happen, right? He could be kind of taking that for granted and focusing only on these new elements that he was thinking of adding, the vultures, Sam's sacrifice, right? Um, so I don't think that this necessarily means Frodo isn't tempted at all, right? Frodo doesn't experience temptation. I, I don't think so. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony, I think that's an excellent synopsis. Um, this version is more of an act. In this version, the 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 big ending, right? The salvation of the world here is brought about through an act of heroism rather than an act of grace, basically. Yeah, I think that's an excellent synopsis of the change here and a good reason why. At the end of the day, I think it's good that he didn't do this, apart from the fact that I quite like Sam having a good ending, or happy ending, I should say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that is an interesting point. Um, <laughs> Sam ex machina. <laughs> Boomful, it does kind of come across like that. Um, 
there are two two years have passed since he wrote the previous outline here. So quite a bit of time, uh, even though it's not gone all that much further in the narrative, right? But two years of time, uh, uh, real world time have has passed. Uh, yeah, wondering how much he uh, was or wasn't remembering the old one. Um, I agree with you. Uh, that is um, an interesting question. But I, I mean, I think he may. He may just be departing from it. He may be assuming it. I'm not sure. Anyway, all right. Next version. At the same moment, Frodo suddenly feels, many times multiplied, the impact of the unseen searching eye and of the enchantment of the ring. He does not wish to enter chamber or to throw away the ring. He hears or feels a deep, slow, but urgently persuasive voice speaking, offering him life, peace, honor, rich reward, lordship, power, finally a share in the great power, if he will stay and go back with a ringwraith to Barad-dûr. This actually terrifies him. He remains immovably balanced between resistance and yielding, tormented, it seems to him, a timeless, countless age. Then suddenly a new thought arose, not from outside, a thought born inside himself. He would keep the ring himself and be master of all. Frodo, king of kings, hobbits should rule. Of course he would not let down his friends, and Frodo rule hobbits. He would make great poems and sing great songs, and all the earth should blossom, and all should be bidden to his feasts. He puts on the ring. A great cry rings out. Nazgul comes swooping down from the north. The eye becomes suddenly like a beam of fire, stabbing sheer and sharp out of the northern smoke. He struggles now to take off the ring and fails. The Nazgul comes circling down, ever nearer. With no clear purpose, Frodo withdraws into the chamber. Fire boils in the crack of doom. All goes dark, and Frodo falls to his knees. At that moment, Gollum arrives, panting, and grabs Frodo and the ring. They fight fiercely on the very brink of the chasm. Gollum breaks Frodo's finger and gets ring. Frodo falls in a swoon. Sam crawls in while Gollum is dancing in glee and suddenly pushes Gollum into the crack. Fall of Mordor. Okay. Um, this is really something, isn't it, Karita? Um, there's a there's a lot here. Uh, this is a this is a really uh, interesting conception. Uh, James, I don't think uh, James, both James and Matt are both wondering if this is the first mention of the uh, Eye of Sauron. I, mm, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, it's, it's, it's really hard. Even with all the work that Christopher has done to kind of put all the things together and piece them together for us, I find it hard to remember that. Um, we might be able to work that out. I know the eye has been his symbol already, um, but here's the thing that I most hmm. here's the thing that suddenly occurs to me as you're asking this. I wonder if somebody could look this up. Amon Hen. That conflict on Amon Hen between the voice and the eye. Did that happen in the earlier drafts when we passed by that before? 
I don't think it did. I don't think it did. I think that this comes first. So that this um, this dynamic of Frodo being torn between two different things, right? And then the third thing, which comes, which is born inside himself, rises up, right? That triad is going to, I think, get displaced onto Emon Hen. I don't think he's borrowing it from there. I don't think Emon Hen was there before that Emon Hen stuff. That Again, that, that specific thing. Um... I don't think that was there before. Um, so that element of it, the, this perception of Sauron's will so directly as the searching eye, um, being that he's so near to Sauron and, and of course, also himself so far gone at this point. Um, anyway, okay. So there's... Um, That triad is really interesting, though. On the one hand, it sounds familiar, because, again, we get that on Ammon Hen in the published text. But it also sounds completely alien, right? You may remember that the triad on Ammon Hen in the published text is the eye, right, seeking to find him and pin him down and know exactly where he is, right? hunting for him, uh, urging him to reveal himself to it, right? Then we have the voice, fool, take it off, take off the ring, Gandalf's voice, Gandalf's will, comp- uh, uh, wrestling with Sauron's to try to protect Frodo and shield Frodo. Um, so, uh, and then the third thing is his own will, neither the... V- I nor the voice, right? His own will. And what that third thing does, that thing that comes from within him is his choice, his own agency, right? He does not have to submit to either thing. He does not have to simply make himself the pawn of the I or of the voice. He has one single moment in which he himself can make a decision. And so he chooses to take off the ring, right? Um, what we get here is something quite different, right? From the eye, we're getting temptation. What sounds exactly like a ring-induced monologue, right? Life, peace, honor, rich reward, lordship, power, a share in the great power, if you will stay and go back with the ring wraith to Barad-dur, right? Bring the ring to me, and I will give you all these things, right? Uh, Karita, as you suggested, all these things I shall give you, right, if you will but bow down and worship me. Um, That's one part. The other part is resistance, right? Um, His terror, his desire to destroy the ring his desire to get to, to resist that temptation. So do we give in to the temptation or do we not give in to the temptation? And then there's that third thing. A new thought arose, not from outside, a thought born inside himself. That suggests to me that that second thought, the um, resistance, right, comes from outside. 
Is that, who's that, is that Gandalf? It's not clearly Gandalf. You can tell that the voice is Gandalf in the published text uh, because he's calling him fool, right? Fool, take it off. Like, you know it's Gandalf, right? Because he, he speaks abusively. Uh, but uh, we don't get any kind of hint at all here of a second voice, of a second agency competing with Sauron there. Uh, it kind of sounds like it would be Frodo, but the text suggests it's not. Um, the thing which is him, the thing which emerges from him, is to me the most shocking thing at all. It's the ring temptation, right? His real ring-induced monologue begins the thing that was born inside himself, the temptation to use the ring. Be master of all. Frodo, king of kings. Um, yeah, now, Veronica, you're absolutely right. There's a diff- big difference between Frodo's own kind of internal desire, right? His own internal temptation and Sauron's external temptation, right? Um, Sauron is offering to give him things, ultimately to share the great power, like as if that would work, right? Um, Gandalf saw through that one pretty quickly um, uh, when that was put to him by Saruman. Uh, The thing that comes from inside Frodo is the ring temptation. Is that from the ring? Is that not from within Frodo at all? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we're meant to take this honestly. I can imagine two different things. One, the initial temptation, I'll give you stuff, comes from Sauron. The resistance comes from Frodo, Frodo's own will, And this thing which he perceives to be born inside himself is not from him. It's from the ring. Right. Um, So that like what he feels to be coming from within inside him, it's just because he's so far gone under the ring's influence that he he hears the ring's voice sounds like his voice. Right. And he he feels the temptation that comes from the ring to be his own will. He can't tell the difference between the ring's will and his own will anymore. And so at that moment, he falls. Right at that moment, he embraces the ring's will as his own will identifies the two of them and puts on the ring. Right, That's one way in which I can read what Tolkien is getting at here. The other way that I would read it is that there are these the two external powers. Right, The force of resistance is coming from somewhere. Not obvious where. Gandalf's still the number one candidate, but it's not made obvious. Anyways, you got the temptation. I'll give you stuff. The resistance. No, I don't want the stuff. Uh, both of those external beating in on him. And that seems clearest. He remained immovably balanced between resistance and yielding, tormented. It seemed to him a timeless, countless age. He is helpless between these two forces, right? So that the ring temptation is not from the ring. It's from him, himself. What we're getting there is not the ring acting on him, but his own will embracing the ring. Remember that this predates a bunch of the ring-induced monologue stuff. Um, so I'm not sure which model is um, uh, what Tolkien was getting at here. Uh, it's 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 a little bit confusing to me. These outlines are always challenging, right? Because we we just don't get enough right to be able to draw firm conclusions about this kind of thing uh, so often. Um, but, um, okay. 
Good. James Lieback is uh, looking it up and saying that this passage um, is contemporary with the drafts of Boromir's attempts to take the ring. Okay, good. And it's and it, it seems to predate the first version of Frodo's vision on Amon Hen. Great, great. Good to know. I was pretty sure that that was the case, but I wanted to make sure. Um, yeah, good. Um, as for uh, uh, several of you have commented on Frodo's, the substance of Frodo's temptation, which is kind of interesting, right? Um, kind of interesting that he should be tempted to be king of kings. The weirdest sentence of all is hobbits should rule. Now, I think in, that's like supposed to sound weird, right? If a hobbit is being like, well, naturally, hobbits should be dominant over everyone else in the earth. Like, you know, there's something wrong, right? If you, when you meet a hobbit who thinks that way. Um, and I, I suspect, you know, that parenthetical thing, of course, he would not let down his friends, right? Um seems to be a way of attempting to rationalize the hobbits should rule thing, but I'm not sure I really follow it fully. Um, how would ruling be not letting down his friends or how would not, would not ruling be letting down his friends in some way? Uh, it's not totally clear to me. Um, I love he would make great poems and sing great songs and all the earth should blossom and all should be bidden to his feasts, right? That sounds like a hobbit temptation, right? Um, The great poems and sing great songs is to me the most fascinating part. On the one hand, you might say, um, well, is that really Frodo's identity? Is that what's going to really activate Frodo? Just as we can see Boromir being tempted by, you know, Boromir is offered by the ring uh, power in battle, right? Power to win in battle and become a great king, benevolent and wise. That's right up Boromir Street, right? Sam is offered um, a garden swollen to a, to a realm, right? To make everything bloom and everything live at peace. That's right up Sam Street, right? Gollum is offered uh, fish straight from the sea three times a day, right? That's right up his street, uh, making everybody else crawl, all of the people, all of his enemies, right? Again, right up Gollum's street. Um, is making great poems and singing great songs, is that Frodo's thing? Right? Do we have reason to think that's Frodo's thing? Well, how is that right up Frodo's street? Well, there's one way in which it does seem to me to be very interestingly relevant, Right? Who's the great poem maker and singer of songs in in Frodo's world, right? Bilbo, of course. Frodo has always lived in the shadow of his uncle. He loves his uncle and respects his uncle greatly, but he's always lived in his shadow, right? What if Frodo were the one to make to write great poetry, right, and to sing great songs? Um, that I think is a very subtle temptation in that way. Um, undermining his relationship with Bilbo in that way. I think that that's really, really interesting. Um, And the bidding to feasts is kind of delightful. Um, But anyway, um, yeah, Nancy, it is kind of cool that even when fantasizing about seizing power, Frodo wants to share it with the people in his town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, First Fish... um, which I think is Carrie, right? Uh, says that the ring was with Bilbo for a long time. Yeah. 
Exactly. So the, the ring knows uh, Bilbo too. Sure. Um, yeah, cool. Anyway, let's look at the end here. Um, so he struggles to take off the ring and fails. I don't think that means he's like, it's stuck. I can't get it off. Um, I think uh, he, he he's trying to take off the ring, but he can't do it. I can't make his hands do it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Frodo falls to his knees. Gollum arrives, breaks Frodo's finger and gets the ring. Uh, I suppose that would work. I guess if you're quick about it. <laughs> I, 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 I broke my ring finger, which you can see is still crooked. Uh, a couple years ago, you guys will probably remember me teaching with this hand in a cast uh, a couple years back. Um, I, I broke my ring finger and it was a darn good thing I had taken my wedding ring off before uh, I did break it or else <laughs> that wedding ring was going to have to be sawn off. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't think he can mean break off. Uh, be, I mean, ripping off a finger, admittedly, it's easier than ripping off somebody's entire arm like Beowulf does to Grendel. Uh, but like wrenching out the finger, <laughs> that's harder to do than it sounds <laughs> like breaking somebody's finger. Not necessarily that hard. Uh, ripping it off quite difficult actually. Um, uh, so yeah, I, um, I'm not really, I mean, again, like I could imagine if he's like trying to hold his hand in a fist to prevent him. And so like he bends it back and breaks it. Well, then it, that would keep Frodo from being able to squeeze it. Right. So that he can't, uh, he can't hold the ring on anymore. Um, and presumably, uh, <laughs> Calm would not mind the sort of chafing that would happen when you're trying to take it off your swollen broken finger. Yeah, exactly, Kate. Breaking it so he can't put it into a fist is what, is what I have to think Tolkien was imagining there. Um, but uh, yeah, Kimber, exactly. No, that's that, with my experience of breaking my ring finger. I, I, it seems to me to be counterproductive in the removal. If your goal is to get a ring off a finger, breaking the finger really is unlikely uh, to make that easier. I have to think. Um, but uh, to me, this is one of the interesting things here. The Baron and Luthien parallels, which we get on the stairs of Kirithungal, and that's already happened. Um, the parallel between Baron getting his hand with the Silmaril in it bitten off by Karkaroth and Frodo getting his finger with the ring on it bitten off by Gollum... Um, the parallel which is emphasized by uh, Sam's comment... At, on at the field of Cormalin, right? Uh, I, I'd have given him a whole hand of mine, rather, right? Um, so the, the parallel between Frodo and Baron that gets established there seems so strong. It's like you, you sort of—I don't know—I I always would have thought that that came first, right? That he, you know he was doing a deliberate Baron parallel there. But it's quite clear that he wasn't right. That was a, that was a thing that he kind of backed into. Um, he does seem to be going out of his way, Matthew, and I'm not sure why he would, but he does seem to be going out of his way uh, to um, prevent 
Frodo's hand being permanently maimed, right? I mean, his finger's broken, but, you know, he might be able to reset it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, Bruce, exactly. We're also told that Fro- Frodo would stand with Baron uh, as one of the great friends of the elves. Exactly, yeah. No, I mean, that. Um, the parallels with Baron come to, you know, make Frodo's minor dismemberment, right? His loss of his finger feel almost inevitable when it happens, right? It feels right, fitting. But yeah, uh, fascinating to see that it's not plan A, right, uh, for Tolkien. Um, Yeah. Now, James, I do agree. We should not, James Lieback, I agree. We should not overlook the fact that Frodo is actively trying to remove, he wants to rem- to take off the ring here. He's failing, but he wants to do it. And that is more than he's done in the either in the earlier versions or in the final version. Um so this this weird kind of three-way thing that's going on here, one of the results does seem to be that ultimately Frodo comes closer to achieving his quest. He still can't do it, right? It's not gonna it's not gonna happen. But he comes closer to achieving it in his will uh than he ever has or ever will, really. Um yeah, James, exactly. Both Baron and Frodo get rescued uh, by eagles from the Dark Lord's lair, too. Yes. In fact, you remember that mind-blowing moment I had uh, back when we were looking at this earlier on? By the same eagles. The same. Two eagles. Who? Yeah, no, exactly. The parallel's pretty, pretty close. I, I, that gets changed. But in the initial concept, it was the same eagles. Um, anyway, um... Yeah, Stephen, that's a really good observation. The published text seems to draw away from Frodo near this point, whereas this description is really going fully inside Frodo's head. It's a pretty big change. Anyway, okay. All right. Let's move along. Another later version. Perhaps better would be to make Gollum repent in a way. He is utterly wretched. No, wait, this isn't a later one. This is continuing this one. Uh, This is a second thought. He is utterly wretched and commits suicide. Gollum has it, he cried. No one else shall have it. I will destroy you all. He leaps into crack. Fire goes mad. Frodo is like to be destroyed. Nazgul's shape at the door. Frodo is caught in the fire chamber and cannot get out. Book of Mazarbo all over again. Here we all end together, said the ringwraith. Frodo is too weary and lifeless to say nay. You first, said a voice, and Sam with sting, maybe, stabs the Black Rider from behind. Frodo and Sam escape and flee down the mountainside, but they could not escape the running molten lava. They see eagles driving the Nazgul. Eagles rescue them. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Stephen. Sam gets to one shot of Ringwraith while, de- while delivering a quip. Right. You know, you've arrived as a hero when you get to do that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Exactly. John, this is the germ of of Mary stabbing the witch king. Clearly. This is what I was referring to earlier. The other, the Sam beating off the vulture might be the germ of this, which is clearly the germ of the Mary scene. But yes, this is this is definitely where the Mary scene uh, comes from. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Zach is opining that Sam and the Wraith would have been pretty easy, <laughs> would have been pretty great to have stay in the story. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, not sure. I mean, the whole, it's kind it makes more sense for the Nazgul just to be destroyed as soon as the ring is destroyed, right? The idea of having the Wraith linger on after the ring has been destroyed, in the end, it's hard, um... But, um, yeah, anyway, um, so Tolkien very quickly decided against the committing suicide thing, right? As Christopher notes, he's underlined that and written no next to it, right? So he, he, he wrote this, but then he almost, uh, it seems fairly quickly, I always hate to say immediately because you can't be sure how much time passed, um, Decides fairly quickly that, that he's not going to do this. Gollum is going to commit suicide. Um, the placing the agency, though, back onto Gollum is the important thing. Whether or not he, so he's not going to deliberately jump into the uh, jump into the uh, uh, into the crack of doom on purpose. Make Gollum repent in a way is interesting, though. Ironically, the Gollum commits suicide angle is the quasi-redemption of Gollum, right? Um, but again, it's only in a way. It's only a quasi-redemption because he's not doing it. He's not saying, I will, you know, this is not Gollum on the edge of the, cla- the, the crack of doom saying it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done before, right? Um, Gollum has it. No one else shall have it. I will destroy you all. His thoughts are petty and vengeful in the end, right? Not self-sacrificing, not noble. Um, so it's not a real repentance, and it's not a full redemption, certainly. Um, but um, but it is interesting to make it a deliberate choice. But again, I think at the end of the day, it's hard for me to see Gollum acting that way, right? Um Gollum has it. No one else shall have it. At the end, it seems to me like what Gollum does in the published text really is fits better with Gollum psychology, I think, than this does. Um, I agree, Stephen, that he's doing this out of despair, right? Um, rather than uh, uh, self-sacrifice. Um, but yeah, Karita, exactly. Gollum's whole thing is survival. Yeah, he's a survivor. Um, and he wants to have the ring and keep it. Uh, and he would never... That This is the, the number one thing, the number one reason I can't buy this is that Gollum would never harm the precious, right? I just, that I can't, I can't see. I can't get behind that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then James Lieback again, as Tony was saying before, less providential, right? Less grace involved here. Um, but back to Gollum as, in a sense, primary actor, right? He's the one through whom the thing happens. Um, rather than the stealth shove by Sam, right? Sam comes out of nowhere and is like, oopsie daisy into the, into the pit you go. Um, Sam finally getting a chance to push Gollum in, uh, to the volcano is, um, 
<laughs> sort of up there. Sam, I think, would kind of vote for that ending, right? Uh, but I actually, I think it's very good that Sam doesn't do that, right? You know, Sam, there's many a time did Gand- did Sam wish there were a handy volcano to push Gollum into earlier on, right? But not indulging that, I think, was the right move, uh, ultimately. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, Yana, it's difficult. Yana's asking, would we see Gollum's psychology differently if this were the story that we knew and loved? Uh, perhaps, but again, the problem is he hasn't. The question is not, would we like it as much if this were the story? It would depend entirely, of course, upon how he depicted the psychology of Gollum prior to this. Um, and what we see out of Gollum is the sort of the kind of fixation on the ring. It's not that it doesn't make sense at all. The impulse to say, I have it and I'm going to take it with me, right? I'm going to destroy it and me. To, I'm going to do like a murder-suicide with the ring so that nobody else can have it. I'm not saying that it's impossible to conceive of that psychology for Gollum or imagining somebody in a situation kind of like Gollum's making that, feeling like he's in the middle of everyone is his enemy, right? Frodo's trying to keep the ring. Sauron's there. The Nazgor are just showing up, right? He's not going to be able to keep the ring. It's going to get taken from him, so he's going to take it with him, right? I'm not saying that that's an impossible uh, piece of psychology to get to get behind. But at the end of the day, that does not seem like what... That, that isn't consistent with the way that we see Gollum uh, talking. He just... He wants the precious and to protect the precious at all costs. Um and I can't see him voluntarily destroying it. Um, yeah, yeah. If I can't have it, no one can have it. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a line of thinking that makes sense. It's just not one that seems to me consistent with, ultimately, the story that Gollum gets. Um, I will destroy you all. Yes, that seems to be a reference to Mount Doom erupting. Like he's gonna he's gonna. And but again, like I'm gonna destroy the ring. My destruction of the precious is a means to the end of killing you guys with lava flows? Like, again, that's that prioritization feels to me pretty, pretty far out of whack. All right. Um, back up to the um, tower of Kirithungal now, having looked at the, some of the, these different versions of the very end. Let's work our way up to the end here. So I'm not going to go through all of the details, especially as usual, as I've been doing during the course of the uh, uh, our discussion of the history of the Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to get too deep into the discussion of the shifting chronologies. Um, it's all there for you to sort out. I'll bring it up when it seems to me really significant, but I'm not going to do. I'm not going to labor through that too uh, in depth here. Um, but let's look at this description of Sam's rescue from the tower. Frodo is captured night of 10 to 11, that is March 10th to 11th. March 12, Frodo in prison. Sauron is distracted by news of the Ents and defeat of his forces in Eastamnet by Ents and Elves of Lorien. Remember, this is still when Ents and Elves, an army of Ents and Elves, shows up at uh, Daggerlad to help them at the Black Gate. No message is sent for some time to Dark Tower. 
partly because of general something or other, illegible word, Frodo is stripped and the mithril coat is found. Gorbag, changed to Shagrat, he kept switching those names back and forth, covets this and tries to stop Gorbag sending message, at first pleading need of searching for Confederate. But quarrel breaks out, and Shagrat and Gorbag fight, and their men take sides. Sam at last finds way in, by a front gate overlooking Mordor, and a steep descent down into a long, narrow dale or trough, behind which is a lower ridge. In end, Gorbag, master of the tower, so Gorbag, who's really Shagrat, or will eventually become Shagrat, wins, because he has more men, and Shagrat, who will eventually become Gorbag, and all his folk are slain. Gorbag then sends tidings to Barad-dûr, together with the mithril coat, but overlooks Lorien cloak. Gorbag has only very few men left, and has to send two, since one won't go alone for fear of missing spy, to Barad-dûr. Sam slips in and slays one of Gorbag's remaining two at the gate, another on stair, and so wins his way into the upper chamber. There he finds Gorbag. Sam takes off his ring and fights him and slays him. He then enters Frodo's chamber, Frodo lying bound and naked. He has recovered his wits, owing to a draft given him by orcs to counter poison, but he has talked in his delirium and revealed his name and country, though not his errand. Frodo is filled with fear, for at first he thinks it is an orc that enters. Then hatred for the bearer of the ring seizes him like a madness, and he reproaches Sam for a traitor and thief. Sam in grief, but he speaks kindly, and the fit passes, and Frodo weeps. This is night of 13th. Sam and Frodo escape from tower on 14th. I am not sure, Tarloniel, why exactly he would take off the ring before fighting Gorbag. Um, I don't see the rationale there. It doesn't explain it, and I'm not sure I see it myself. Anyone else has any other ideas? Like, you know, were they having a conversation first? I, I don't I don't really know. Um, yeah. Um Oh, and yes, Stephen, men here clearly just means... Tolkien very frequently uses the word men generically to mean units, right? We see this in The Hobbit, too, right? Um, when he talks about the raft men of the elves, right? He, he refers to the elves who are rowing the barrels down to Lake Town as men a couple times um, because he's using the word men generically, Um you know, there were six men on the rafts, meaning there were six people on the rafts, right? They're elves, um, not humans. Um, but again, you can see exactly, uh, Boomful, it's all about the capitalization, right? He capitalizes the M when he means those of the race of men. When he uses it without capitalization, he, very, he usually just means generically. Sometimes you can't tell because he's referring generically to men, lowercase m, who are also men, capital M. But... You know, he does apply that to elves. This is the only example I can think of when he's referred to orcs as men in that way. But it's it's consistent with his other usages. Um, it is possible, Veronica, to see Sam's removal of his ring before fighting Gorbag as like an honor thing, right? He's not going to stab him in the back. The problem is we don't see that he did that with the other two orcs that he fought. Why should he, you know... That sense of, like, Sam knows that this is the boss fight, so he needs to take off the ring and fight him honorably. Again, I don't totally follow that reasoning, but that certainly seems like a good theory. Um, 
Yeah, Stephen says it reminds him of Maori. Yes, exactly. Like, I, I shall descend and fight you on foot. Um, maybe that's it. Um, maybe. Maybe. Um, okay. So, what do we notice about this initial story? A lot of this, of course, is very similar. Um to what we get in the published text. So a lot of that fundamental that, you know, once Tolkien thought of the strife breaking out among the orcs and most of them all killing each other, right? The rest of it, apart from who is named Gorbag and who is named Shagrat, um, got, uh, came out fairly clearly. The primary thing that's different in this story here is the fact that Gorbag, who will become Shagrat, is killed by Sam, whereas Shagrat, of course, is the one who escapes and carries the bundle of things off to Barad-dur in the published text. Um, Here, I was having a hard time following this here. Does anybody get out with the mithril coat? Gorbag then sends tidings together with a mithril coat, but overlooks the warrior cloak. Okay. Oh, right. So that's already happened. So he's already sent the mithril coat to Barad-dur. So there's nothing left for Sam to do but go through, kill every last orc left in the tower, and rescue Frodo. So the message is simply off. Okay, so the shift then, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, then the um, the shift um, between this version and the published text is mostly about kind of increasing the drama, emphasizing the significance of the sending off of the thing. You know, so when Shagrat in the published text escapes with the bundle, right? Um, that's a portentous moment, right? Some bad things are going to happen because Shagrat is, and we see it happen, right? Um, and we see Sam torn, right? Between, um, uh, between going to rescue Frodo and pursuing Shagrat with his bundle. Um, and whereas we don't get that here, right? So that that decision that uh, Sam has to make uh, is a little bit more interesting as a story than him working his way up two small skirmishes and then a boss fight and then finding Frodo. The idea of Frodo reproaching Sam for a traitor and a thief, that is the oldest idea of this scene, right? When Sam rescued Frodo from the tower of, uh, from Minas Morgul back the very first time Frodo got captured by orcs, um, the very first time they got to Mordor that happened, right? So that sense of, uh, betrayal, right? His fear of betrayal and the, what seems like a betrayal to Sam, of course, as well, in a sense, um, that's consistent and has been consistent from the beginning. Um, uh, people are, let's see, uh, yeah. Oh, right, okay, on uh, Twitch chat here, people are saying that, um, doesn't the ability to remove the ring speak to Sam's incredible immunity to it? Maybe, maybe. Um, but he's not at the cracks of doom yet, right? Um, Maybe he can see the physical world more clearly without the ring on, Eric. That is certainly true. So that could be a factor. 
Um, yeah, maybe. Anyway, okay. Oop, wrong way. Brief note on the Stone of Erech as we, uh, this is like this, and I loved the uh, description of uh, how he's crammed this onto the back of a sheet that he had been using to talk about candidates for a position's uh, credentials, right? And then on the back side, he writes this about the uh, Aragorn's trip down the stone, uh, uh, to the Stone of Erech, the, the, the journey of the, the Grey Company here. I'm not going to talk about most of that passage because most of that passage is about Christopher Tolkien obsessing about the geography, which I get. I get it. Christopher Tolkien drew the maps and uh, and that stuff really bothers him. And I, I totally understand that, but I'm not too worried about that. This was the part that jumped out at me most, uh, really the beginning of it. Aragorn takes paths of dead morning, eight March passes tunnels of the mountains and comes out into the head of the Morthon Vale at dusk. Men of the Dale are filled with fear, for it seems to them that behind the dark shapes of the living riders, a great host of shadowy men comes nearly as swift as riders. Aragorn goes on through night and reaches Stone of Erech at morning on March 9. Stone of Erech was black stone fabled to have been brought from Numenor and set to mark the landing of Isildur and Anarion and their reception as kings by the dark men of the land. It stood on the shores of Koba, near the outflow of Morthond, and about it was a ruined wall within which was also a ruined tower. In the vault under the tower, forgotten, was one of the Palantiri. From Erech a road ran by the sea, skirting in a loop the hills of Tarnost, and so to Ethir Anduin and the Lebenin. Um, now, Christopher was kind of puzzled, like, why has he moved the Stone of Erech up to the shores of Koba, right? That answer seems to me relatively, uh, uh, relatively simple, right? He wants it up on the shores there because he is imagining the Stone of Erech as being a monument commemorating the landing of Elendil, right? And Elendil didn't, you know, he's not going to land inland, right? So if, if the Stone of Erech is way inland up by the mountains, um, then it cannot be the commemoration of the landing spot, right? Um, so he's chosen to make it the commemoration of the landing spot, and so that's why he moves it over to where he does, because it looks like a logical place for a Lendl to wash up, right, uh, on Middle-earth. Um, the wash up makes it perhaps, is perhaps too slighting to the, uh, uh, to the skill as mariners of the Numenorians. Um, anyway, uh, You may recall that originally the Stone of Erech was the Palantir, right? Aragorn's like, we got to go get the Stone of Erech, right? Meaning the Palantir. Um, and so there, originally there was no other stone other than, <clears throat> other than a Palantir at, at Erech. This is the transition point. There's still a Palantir there, right? Locked away in the basement of the ruined tower, right near the Stone of Erech, right near the monument. But the Stone of Erech is also a separate stone. It is no longer itself a palantir. It is a monument, a black stone, fabled to have been brought from Numenor and set to mark the landing. So it's given 
<clears throat> a historical significance. It's still associated with wonder, right? Because it's associated with, um, you know, having been brought from Numenor itself. Yeah, Stephen says that Aragorn is in need of missile weapons. Uh, so he's grabbing uh, all the palantiri that he can. Yes, that is, of course, the primary usage of palantiri in the early text is uh, you can brain people with them. Um, just ask Wormtongue. Just ask Gandalf. Um, anyway, so uh, really cool to see this transition. Um, he's decided, no, the Stone of Erech should be a real stone, a separate stone. Um, but he doesn't give in on the Palantir idea. Uh, after this, he's going to stop with the Palantir. Um, but he still hasn't given it up yet. Anyway, all right. Um, the Tower of Kirithungal. Tolkien works out, visual artist, right, works out what it should look like. And in that dreadful light, Sam stood aghast, for now he could see the Tower of Kirithungal in all its strength. The horn that those could see who came up the pass from the west was but its topmost turret. Its eastern face stood up in four great tiers from a shelf in the mountain wall some five hundred feet below. Its back was to the great cliff behind, and it was built in four pointed bastions of cunning masonry, with sides facing northeast and southeast, one above the other, diminishing as they went up, while about the lowest tier was a battlemented wall enclosing a narrow courtyard. Its gate opened on the southeast into a broad road. The wall at the outward something or other was upon the brink of a precipice. Okay. Um... I, this is similar to the description. It's a little more detailed, but it's similar to the description that we get in the published text. I had never really been able to picture the Tower of Kirithungal until I saw Tolkien's drawing, right? And there is Tolkien's hand sketch of what the Tower of Kirithungal, and then, then I'm like, oh, tears like that. Okay, so in fact, what we see in the Tower of Kirithungal is that it's kind of like Minas Tirith, right? Having the different wards you can see down here, right? Down here is the gate where you go in, and then you kind of go inside, and you're going to have to wander up in order to get up to that tower. You're going to have to wander through all four levels and then up the tower at the top, which works as a watchtower in both directions, right? You put a tower at the top so it can look out, of course, as a, the maximally commanding view uh, of the valley, you know, of Mordor itself, but it also can look out the other direction because it peaks up over the mountains. That's why they can see it from that side. Um, and Devorah, yeah, it does make sense since it was originally built by the same folks. Um, know the design. I mean, some of the details in the in the description of the design of the tower changes. I do. I don't think that the entire design changes. I think that this is pretty much what he, how he conceived the Tower of Kirithungal looking. One small point here. Um, one small point here. Notice how the text is all crammed up against the drawing, right? Two things that, two conclusions that you can draw from this in rapid succession. Number one, remember there's a war on Right, paper is really scarce, so he does not waste any space here on this page. Right, any that he can help. Um, so he, uh, 
you know, he's got the writing all cramming around, um, um, uh, all cramming around the, 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 the picture. But of course the other conclusion one has to draw is he still drew the picture, right? Despite how precious, um, paper was. And despite the fact that he's describing it here, he's got to draw it. And it's perfectly clear. Now I say perfectly clear. I think it's pretty clear. No, it's, it's, it's quite clear. He drew the picture first, right? First, he draws the sketch. Then he fills in the rest of that page with text describing it. Right. Um, but first, he drew it. He's a visual artist first and foremost. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Marilyn and Kimber were both coming to the same uh, uh, the same conclusion. And yeah, Stephen, that is actually text. That is the handwriting that Christopher is uh, valiantly deciphering for us. Um, that's actually pretty good. It gets much worse than that uh, in places. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, Matt, there are other details that are added, but I do think this is still the basic conception that we get of it um, in the published text. I have to go back and look more carefully at the published text version again. Um, but uh, but anyway, here's my... I have a, a serious objection, though, to this conception. There is one way in which this, even the drawing itself seems not to be very well thought out at all. And that's the road. Look at the road. So this windy path over here on the side, this is where um, the path up to Kirithungal goes. Right? That's the path that um, uh, it's the path that Sam has to come down in order to go around and go in the gate because it's the only way in. Right? Um, but the text emphasizes how this is designed, this whole fortress is designed to defend the pass and specifically from people trying to get out from the inside. And if that's what you're doing, um, it doesn't make any sense at all to have a road which completely bypasses the tower, right? Um, I mean, if you were really trying to prevent anybody from passing through, you would have a uh, your fortress, you'd have the road, the only road up to the path going straight through the fortress so that you had to pass through every gate, right? Tier after tier uh, until you finally got let out the other side, right? Um Clearly, that would be the whole point of having a terraced fortress like this uh, on the on the you know on the eastern side of the pass. Um, what would be the point of having a tower at all, right? Of having the stronghold at all, if you just had a bypass uh, next to it, um, you know, I, I, that just seems to me kind of strange. I don't really understand it. I mean, yeah, sure, Stephen, you can have archers cover it, and sure, you have windows looking out, so there's lots of chances of being detected on the road, but still, that's not protection. Um, and again, like, why even have a fortress if you're going to have a road going around it? Like, there's really 
no point in building elaborate fortifications if you're going to do that. Um, so that seemed to me a little bit strange, and but a natural result of the fact that it seems to me Sam's story here is driving the conception, right? Um, he needs to have a... It, if the road went in the way that makes sense, right, uh, then, you know, that is going through the tower, then the back door would come out by the main tower, right, the, the main horn at the top, um, right under that. Uh, so Sam would have much less far to go, right, if he went in that way. Um, now, uh, yeah, Harnoth, I was thinking that too. That was the one theory that I came up with to possibly explain it. And that is that the orcs built the road after they took up tenancy here. So, um, they often use this road. They don't need to go through the tower. Yes. This tower is still designed to protect, um, to make sure that none of the slaves of Mordor escape, but it's not defending against armies. It's not defending against military incursion as in the old days it would have been right. So, um, it would make a certain amount of sense for the orcs to create a path which still could be watched by the watchers of the tower um, so that anyone attempting to go that way can be intercepted. But, um, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't slow down people going out. That's the only explanation, Harnath, I agree, that makes any sense to me. All right. But as to the Towers of the Teeth, Sorry, but as with the Towers of the Teeth upon Kirith Gorgor, so here the watch and ward had failed and treachery had yielded up the tower. But Sauron, too, had found it useful, for he had few servants and many slaves. Still, its purpose was, as of old, to keep people in. Sam looked, and he saw how the tower commanded the main road from the pass behind. The road he was on was only a narrow way that went corkscrewing down into the darkness and seemed to join a broad way from the gate to the road. Harnuth, that would be in in support of this idea, right? If the road that he's using, that road which is depicted as that winding switchbacky road um, uh, in his illustration here, right? Um, if that is, as Sam says, only a narrow way corkscrewing down into the darkness, um, then that could well be a track that has been kind of carved out and developed uh, by, uh, by the orcs in the meantime. Yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, I agree. Uh, I always, I mean, I remember reading this as a kid and, and, and I, I got the concept that the tower was meant to uh, keep people in instead of out. But again, I never really saw it quite that fully. Like, oh, okay, no, I can see, right? Yeah, you'd have to, like mounting the terraces of Minas Tirith, you'd have to go through a whole series of gates and past a whole series of fortifications. Uh, coming from that side. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, but it joins the Broadway. What was the other thing I was going to say here? I, oh! Um, right before this, it had talked about... So, when this tower was originally built by the Numenorians, it was because some of Sauron's creatures were still milling around in Mordor, right? And so sometimes they would try to come out. Um, so even then, it wasn't really designed to repel armies 
so much as it was designed to keep, I would have to presume, monsters out, right? Or rather, keep them in Mordor and not let them come out into Ithilien. Um Because it is not said that the, t- that the Tower of Curathungal was built by Isildur back when Minas Ithil was still, um, uh, you know, in operation. Okay. Let's charge along, because we're getting close. Um, Sam's rejection of the temptation to claim the ring as his own was expressed thus. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to command, not the hands of others. Service given with love was his nature, not to command service, whether by fear or in proud benevolence. After the words, he was not really in any doubt, there follows in the D text, but he was lonely and he was not used to it or to acting on his own. To this my father subsequently added, before striking it all out, since no one else was there, he had to talk to himself. Um, I love the glimpse of Sam's naturally gregarious nature. He was lonely and he was not used to it, right? Is interesting. Um, I love that little glimpse into Sam's character, which is, you can see in the text, but it's never stated like that. Um, that last sentence, though, in The Temptation, right? The rest of it sounds fairly familiar, but service given with love was his nature, not to command service, whether by fear or in proud benevolence. And I agree, Marilyn, proud benevolence is Frodo's temptation, right? Like it was Boromir's temptation and Denethor's temptation as well. Um, but it's not Sam's temptation. Service given with love, that's what, uh, that's what he's about. That is fantastic. Also, remember, this wasn't there first, right? When Sam first descends into Mordor, he does so wearing the ring, and he doesn't have his ring-induced monologue. That comes later. Tolkien seems to decide, he puts a note next to it saying, no, he shouldn't wear the ring into Mordor at all. Um, and th- and that's when we get the ring temptation there. Um, but we didn't get it right away. Okay. Um, this is the uh, the one surviving orc peon uh, reporting to Gorbag, who shall later become Shagrat. Where in the return of the king, Snaga declares that the great fighter, Sam, is one of those bloody-handed elves or one of the filthy Tarks, and that his getting past the Watchers is Tark's work, C has, that's elvish work. D has, one of these filthy wizards, maybe. And that's wizard's work. Wizard being changed in pencil to Tark, which appears in the second manuscript E as written. Only in one point does the story as told in the draft C differ from that in D. When Gorbag rouses himself from among the corpses on the roof, Sam sees uh, on the roof Sam sees in the ladder, as in the Return of the King, that he has in his hand a broad-headed spear with a short broken haft. In C, on the other hand, he has a red and shining sword. It was his own sword, that is Sam's own sword, the one he left by Frodo. With this. Cross-reference text B, Frodo has to have orc weapons. The sword is gone. 
Um, yeah, Tarlonio, it is kind of funny to think about like how many filthy wizards are running around these days anyway, right? Um, and Yana, it is a little bit weird for them to be well-known enough that that's like, you know, theory A, right? Oh, must be one of those wizards, right? They're all over the place, those wizards. Okay, so a Tark is a Numenorian. Um, and those are the three things that we see here. So that Tark is the orcish um, uh, sort of mutation. Not mu- mutation is a poor word. Um, uh, uh, perversion of the word Tarkil, which means man of westerness. So um, they call the Numenorians Tarks. Uh, in C, so in the earlier text, he says that's elvish work. Elves would get by. That makes a lot of sense. Changing it from elf to Tark is interesting, right? Uh, and, and a serious elevation of Numenorians, or at least a serious elevation of Numenorians in the mind of the orcs in question, right? Um, that it goes through wizard in an intermediary stage is really fascinating, not only because of the sort of strange um, uh, impracticality of that, as we said, how many wizards are there and how many have they met? Um, but uh, but again, they will have heard stories, right? Um, I, of course, can't help but think of the comment... Um, you know, Pippin's comment that he thinks that uh, Aragorn and Gandalf must be related. Right. Um, elf lords, lords of Numenor, and wizards all acting kind of on a par here, at least in the assessment of the orcs, uh, is uh, kind of kind of fun. Um, but it does finally get settled down to Tark, as that's, of course, what's going to be most familiar to the orcs there in that region, uh, folks of Numenorian descent. Um, the, and the idea of Shagrat wielding Sam's own barrow blade against him is eerie, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, Matt, I agree. I don't, I mean, how many lowercase wizards are running around Middle-earth? There used to be bunches of them, scads of them in the old days. I mean, the, the convention of white wizards that Gandalf goes to in The Hobbit is an un, indeterminate but apparently large number of people that he's going to visit. Um, that seems to have been reducing, but it might not yet even now be totally gone. Um, because, Matt, I don't think we have the Rods of the Five Wizards yet. I don't think... Did we get that? Does Saruman deliver that line? I can't remember. Somebody look that up and tell me if Saruman delivered the line about the five wizards. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, we'll keep going because we have a poem to talk about. Actually, this is risky, but I'm going to postpone talking about the poem. Um, I'm... uh, I think I'm too sleepy to talk about, to start talking about a poem now at midnight. Um, it's a risk pushing it off, but I think I'll take the risk. We'll start with the poem next time. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's do that. Um, Francis, <laughs> uh oh, a poem. I know, right? I thought the same thing. We got to the end. Um, let me let's play a game. What poem does this sound like? At the last second, as I was rereading this poem, I suddenly placed what this was making me think of. And then as soon as I thought of it, I was like, holy cow. Um, Think about that. Do some comparing and contrasting, and we'll talk about that uh, at the beginning of class next time. Yeah, good. Stephen, Yana, uh, and Kate, you're all thinking in the same direction I am there. Um, Yeah, Devorah, too. Good. Go back and look at that. Let's think about that. What does this mean? Anyway, more on this next time. Uh, we'll, We'll start with this and then carry on moving forward. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I will see you guys next week. Uh, And uh, in the meantime, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.